0: You may remember that we began a new message series called Life's Healing Choices. And we started by looking at the great sermon that Jesus preached, the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 5. And in particular, we're looking at the Beatitudes that Jesus shared. And he really says, as we told you last week, what Jesus said, I'm going to give you eight choices, eight life choices that you can make and these will make you happy. Now, if I take you back to last week, let me it was the reality choice. The reality choice you'll see up on the screen here in a moment, you'll see it in your, in your worship folder too, is simply this. I realize that I am not God. Now, for many people, that's a big step already, to realize that they are not God. But I am not God, and I admit that I am powerless. That's hard for people to admit too, that they have nothing to do with it. To control my tendency to do the wrong thing in my life is unmanageable. We started with Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. That's where it said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this week we come to the second choice, the second life choice, and this is called the hope choice. And here's our hope choice. I earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him. And that he has the power to help me change. Now we're basing this today on the second of the, two, of the eight Beatitudes. The one in Matthew chapter 5 verse 4 that says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now when you see that, blessed are those who mourn, there's probably a word that jumps out and that's that word mourn. and They're going to be comforted. Immediately you realize that Jesus' path to comfort and hope is entirely different than your path that you would choose to comfort and hope. The truth is, most of us spend way too much time in our life trying to avoid the path that God lays out and instead try to take the path that we find to be more comfortable. The truth is, nobody here really wants to mourn. And all we do with how we can get to that place of comfort and hope, we want to do it as quick as possible. We don't want to go through any process that's going to involve us mourning or weeping or feeling bad about ourselves. And so because of that, we choose all sorts of paths to comfort. You know, things like alcohol. You know, that's going to comfort us for a while. Or we choose, uh, you know, some drug of our choice. Or for some other people, their path to comfort and hope is gambling. I'm just going to head down to the boats for a while, and you know, then I'm going to feel better about myself. Or, or maybe it's shopping. You know, some people always say, you know, when I'm down the dumps, I go shopping. To which the husband one time said, so that's where you get your hats. Um, so uh, for other people, it's a pity party, self-pity. For other people, it's anger. That's how they reach comfort and hope because they think that the more uncomfortable they are with their life or their life could be more comfortable if they can make your life uncomfortable. For other people, it's work or food and the list kind of goes on and on. But you could write down one word more than anything else. Our, Our path to comfort is called escape. It's escape. We try to escape anywhere we can to find our comfort, our hope, and we try to get there as fast as we possibly can. Now the problem is this, everything that you and I would attempt to use to give us comfort only gives us a momentary escape at best. And worse, it often leaves us addicted uh, because I've got to try to get more and more of the thing that I think that I'm gonna bring me comfort when it's never going to give me comfort in the first place. See, the truth of the matter is a comfortable life will not comfort your soul you and i need something bigger than what this world offers we need something that only god can give now a couple of months ago in my scripture reading my daily reading as i got here to the sermon on the mount as i read through it um, when i read i often do study at the same time as i told my bible class this morning the difference between reading your bible and studying your bible is this it's called a pen And as you're reading, you're sitting there and you start taking some notes on about what it is that you read. And I want to read you something that I wrote as I was reading that day. I wrote this down. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's really weird. I mean, Jesus turns happiness all upside down. That's the strangest thing I ever thought of. Can you imagine my deepest happiness and blessings in life often come from the things that I least want to be part of my life, things that I would never ever think of choosing for my life. But it's not just a matter of having bad things happen, it's a matter of choosing to mourn. Can you believe that? I would actually want to choose to mourn. I guess that means choosing to accept that those things that have happened, to realize that this world does not hold the hope that I need, and instead, I need to look for God, look to God for the comfort only he can give. And then after that, I wrote a little prayer. And the prayer I wrote was this. Lord, I don't want to mourn. I don't like the idea of mourning. I hate the idea of mourning. But I do want to be comforted. And more often than I care to admit, mourning is the only path to comfort. Admitting what I don't have, that's hard. Admitting what I've lost don't like that. Admitting what is not there is the only path to realize that what I do have is found only in you and what you can give, because I don't know anyone else who can do it or give it to me. Now, how does that happen? That you get to the point, though, that you would actually say, I'm gonna choose God's path. How does God give us this comfort and hope? And I just wanna share three simple points with you this morning. And God's path really begins with this. We need to see God for who God really is. I mean, how do I know that I can trust God to comfort me? Now, this may seem an odd question, but I, I ask it. I mean, how do we know that God will comfort us? Because a lot of people think that God is not necessarily in the business of comfort, but that God is in the business of condemning us. I mean, even Martin Luther, the patron saint of our, of our denomination, used to think that God was some big, white-haired guy with a white beard with a really cranky look on his face, sitting up in heaven with thunderbolts or lightning bolts in both hands, and he was just looking for Christians to zap. And, and that's what he thought, that God was out to get him. I still run into people today who have a hard time trusting God for anything because they don't picture God as being anything wonderful or anything to be desired. Now, when people tell me that, that they don't want to trust in God because he's a God who condemns, then I guess the follow-up question is, then who are you going to uh, trust? I mean, are you going to trust your feelings? Maybe that's the dividing question this morning. Are you going to trust your feelings, or are you going to trust the event that changed all of human history? I mean, think again what happened. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes into this world through a virgin birth, born in Bethlehem. And all what happened at Easter, what happened at the resurrection, is all about God saying, I am not here to condemn you, I'm here to love you. If you paid attention to what Jimmy shared with you before from Romans, I'm going to repeat verse 34, it's right up there. Well, in you see it up on the screen. Let's, let's just read this passage out loud together. Who then will condemn us? Will Christ? No. For he is the one who died for us and came back to life again for us and is sitting at the place of highest honor next to God, pleading for us there in heaven. I mean, that's what God is doing. He's not condemning us. He is choosing to be there for us. Now, I certainly understand people who think that God's a condemning God. But let me remind you, Jesus came to this planet. He lived his life for you. He went to death on a cross for you. And he died on that cross for you. And so when it comes to God being out to condemn you, your feelings have told you a big lie. I mean, the truth is, Jesus lived his entire life for you. I remember somebody telling me one time that I mean, he put it very, very directly. He said, Barry, if you were the only person to have ever lived in all of history, God would have still sent his son to die for you. That's how much God loves us. The truth is, he was resurrected. One of the things I taught down in prison this week was, uh, can we really, you know, what is it you believe and how do you know it's true? I mean, I, I shared a little bit about this morning in Bible class. Okay, do you believe that the Bible is God's word? Yes. How do you know it's true? How do you know people didn't make it up? Is there any proof that this is true? I mean, how many people believe that Jesus is the son of God? Oh, I do. Okay, how would you prove it? Jesus rose again from the grave. Okay, do we believe it? Yes. How would you prove it? Is there any proof whatsoever? Well, there's plenty of truth. You just need to dig a little bit and explore a little bit and get into the spiritual disciplines a little bit. And you find the truth. The truth is that God, that the Son of God today is sitting at God's right hand and he's praying for you. Every time I think about that, I get this kind of a, a wonderful, kind of a goofy image. I know it's kind of a goofy image, but if you can picture this, if you can get in your mind a picture of God sitting on his throne in heaven and he's looking down at you and uh, you're praying. And if you're like me, sometimes you can't get the right words out. You kind of mumble and grunt a little bit and the words don't flow like you'd like to have them flow and you're praying. And God is looking at you and he's listening to your prayer and at the same time, uh, on his left side is the Holy Spirit. Now the Bible says that the Holy Spirit kind of uh, interprets all of our moaning and groanings and translates them and so he's like whispering in God's ear, look, Barry's really having a hard time getting this to come out right. Now, I know his heart. This is what he's really saying. And on the other side, Jesus is sitting, and he says, I've got to tell you, Father, he has really goofed up a lot in his life, but he's one of ours. I died for him. He believes in me. His blood has covered all of his sins. Isn't that kind of a cool thing to know that that's going on when you pray, that God is listening, that the Holy Spirit is interpreting, and Jesus is saying, you're all right. You're one of his. Well, what is God really like? You know, we could spend weeks talking about what God is really like, but who is God really? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. I want to tell you, first of all, that God is a God of compassion. Psalm 86 says, But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So that's what God is really like. He's compassionate. He cares about you. I mean, who is God really? 2 Corinthians 1.3, God is the Father who is full of mercy and all comfort. That's who God is, the Father of mercy and comfort. What's God really like? Well, God is about being close to you. In fact, if you are a believer, God is so close to you that he's inside you. That's his promise. You've got the Holy Spirit, the resident president living inside of you. God is about having a relationship with you. Psalm 23, some of you know that whole thing for heart. You get down to verse 4, what does it say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And he's with you, and what's he got? He's got this rod and this staff, and sometimes that rod is for poking you (laughs) to get you to move. The shepherd also, at night when the sheep would come back, would stand with his feet on either side of the door into the sheep pen, and he would have that rod... And the sheep had to pass between his legs, and he pushed, pressed down that rod, and he kind of get them down so he could feel all over them to see if they had any cuts or bumps or bruises so he could minister to them. Now, nobody got into that sheep, and he would then sleep in the doorway. You ever hear that phrase, you're going to get to my sheep over my dead body? That's exactly what happened. You were only going to get to somebody's sheep over that shepherd's dead body. Well, guess what? Uh, Jesus put a dead body there too only his came back to life there's that rod but there's that staff because sometimes you and I get into places we don't belong and he's got to kind of hook us and pull us back in my home congregation St. John's in in Seward, Nebraska in the old church uh, there was uh, a lot of these stained glass windows along the side and the one I always remember on the far side was that picture many of you seen of Jesus with that little sheep over his shoulder And he's climbing up the side of a mountain. He's got that staff. And I always wondered how that stupid little sheep got over the edge. Well, when I found out that Jesus called us sheep, well, I know how this stupid little sheep got over the edge on a couple of times. Now, the interesting thing in that stained glass window was, you know, that Jesus went down there and got him and brought him back. And that little sheep in that stained glass window actually had a little smile on his face. I don't know why they thought that, but, you know... But Jesus was happy to go get him. See, that's the kind of God who loves us. It's the kind of God who comforts us. It's the kind of God who gives us hope. And if I'm going to have hope, then I've got to have something to hope in, and I've got to have hope in somebody that I really, really know. But there's a second thing here. Not only do I need to see who God really is, I need to see who I really am. Now, one of the things I, I, I have to see about myself, we talked about this last week. Kara may remember when I asked what the common denominator in all of her problems was. Do you remember what the common denominator was? Who was it? It was, No, not you, it's you. <laughs> not me, it's you. <laughs> the common denominator in all your problems is you. And the reason you are the common denominator in all of your problems and the reason I'm the common denominator in all of my problems is because I'm broken. I'm a sinner. That's why it is. I'm a sinner in every way. Romans 3.23, you all know that one. You've read it many times. Uh, For all people have sinned. They all fall short of God's glorious standard. They all fall short of the glory of God. I think we all know that. I have never, ever met a single person who would say they never sinned. I've never met anybody like that. I have never ever met anybody who wouldn't think that they wish they hadn't done what they'd done when they'd done it uh, i've never never met a person like that. I mean everybody knows they did something wrong now whether they want to call it sin or not, you know we don't like that word very often i mean Parents, when was the last time you called your children little iniquitous heathens? It's hard to look at that little baby and say, you let's see, what is it? How does it go in the old liturgy? Um, I am a you poor miserable sinner, you it's hard to say that about a little baby, isn't it? Poor miserable little sinner when it looks like this is happy as a clam at high tide. No, I'm sorry. Joe and Amanda, she is. And the reason she is is because you is. That's what happens when you have babies. Particularly when you're sinners. Sinners have other sinners. And I don't care whether grandma grandpa like that or not. Those wonderful little grandkids of yours. Sinner. Broken. That's just the way they are. That's what the Bible says. But you know, what's... What's also true is that because we're broken and because we're sinful, we don't like it. And so what we do is we try to hide from that truth. We don't want to admit to anybody that we've ever done anything wrong, but the truth of the matter is, in the end, you will never, ever be able to hide. I used to make a joke that I would try to sin real fast so God would miss it. Well, you can't do that. Luke chapter 12, verse 2, what does it say? But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Yikes. (laughs) Jason, what would you think if somebody had a videotape of your entire life from birth up to today and could see every last thing that you have ever done from birth to today? Would you like that? Okay. yeah. We probably wouldn't like part of it. (laughs) I don't know. But guess what? God has. God's got one. God knows everything Jason has done from birth to today. Knows the same thing about you too, Nancy. Got the videotape. Wayne, same too. Miss Helen, you too. Noel, you too. Jack, you too. Everybody. That's what that passage is saying. You're not slipping anything by. You may think you fooled your friends. But you will never, ever fool God. But you can't just stop there and say, look, I'm broken. It can't just be that. You also need to see that be- because you're broken, you- you're still loved by somebody who knows you best. Now, Joe and Amanda, you-, you got that little heathen there, that little iniquitous person here. But I bet you you still love her. You still love her. Now, that's human love. And, uh, but I want you to know something, that God loves that little one more than you do. And that's sometimes hard for us to understand, that God would love us like no other human being would ever love us. Now, what's the difference between God's love and our love? Well, it's pretty simple. Human love fades, but God's love is everlasting. In Jeremiah 31, it says, I love you with an everlasting love. So I will continue to show you my kindness. I said in Bible class this morning, one of the things that absolutely amazes me about God's love is this, that God cannot love you any more or any less than he does right now. I mean, I think about that for a while. God is unable to love you any more or any less than he loves you right now. So don't ever start thinking, well, God probably doesn't love me anymore. No, that's not true at all. Psalm 119 says, may your unfailing love be my comfort. You know, just be comforted in the fact that no matter how broken you are, God's unfailing love is still there for you. I mean, human love is often earned. You be nice to me, and I'll like you. Courtney, you want to be on my good side? You better be good when it comes to confirmation class, or I won't like you anymore. See, but if you're really good, you know everything, you do everything I tell you, then I'm going to love you. That's the way human love works sometimes. But God's love is never that way. God's love is an absolute gift. Romans 3, 24, God in his gracious kindness declares us not guilty. He's done this through Christ Jesus who's freed us by taking away our sins. He's repaired our brokenness. So if you want to experience some real hope, some real comfort, first of all, you need to understand uh, uh, and see who God really is. You need to see who you really are And third, you've got to see how God can change you. Now, when I say that God can change me, there are probably two negative reactions that we need to deal with. One negative reaction is this. Yeah, I'd like to change, but I just don't have the time or the energy right now. I think I could retire on that one if I got about $100 for every time somebody ever told me that in the office. Yeah, Pastor, I got a problem. Well, let's deal with it. Oh, you know... I'm just too tired. I don't have enough time to do it. Uh, you know, I don't have the energy. Another reaction uh, you often hear is, I mean, who am I kidding that God can change my life? I mean, I tried a hundred times to change. I have prayed until I got calluses on my knees for change. I have tried to climb that mountain of change, but I keep finding myself back at the bottom. I have disappointed myself. I've disappointed others many, many times. I've disappointed God Why bother to try anymore? Now, those are two negative reactions we get to change. But both of those negative reactions both come from the same place. They come from the place that's feeling like it's all up to you, that it's all on your shoulders, that somehow I've got to change my life. The idea that I've got to do it well, it just wears me out. Now, I'll be honest with you. If I had to motivate myself to change like we're talking about for the rest of my life, every day of my life, I'd give up. Honestly, I'd give up. I'd be home watching football on television. or you know, Why try? Because I don't have that kind of motivation in me naturally to do what I ought to do. So where do I find the power to change my life? But one of the last Bible passages you see on your outline comes from Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah 40 is interesting. The chapter begins with some familiar words that says, comfort, comfort ye my people. Maybe some of you remember that. Comfort, comfort my people. But it's at the end of this chapter that God talks about the kind of power that he wants to give you now let me read this to you it says have you never heard or understood don't you know that the lord is the everlasting god the creator of all the earth he never grows faint or worried no one can measure the depths of his understanding he gives power to those who are tired and worn out he offers strength to the weak even youth will become exhausted and young men will give up but those who wait on the lord will find new strength they will fly high on wings like eagles They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and they will not faint. I'll boil that down. All all the prophet is really saying is, folks, it's not all on your shoulders. You need to realize that God's power to change is God's power to change. It's not you changing for God. It's God changing you with his power. Now, I want to give you a little mental picture based on this, this passage. I, I was thinking about this as I was going through the sermon. I remember, Nancy, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we, we took off a day. We drove up to Queen Wilhelmina. Some of you have been up there before. And we were eating lunch there. And right outside the window, remember, we were watching the hummingbirds. And I got to thinking about this. Hummingbirds, eagles, hummingbirds, eagles. Because out further out the window, over that valley, if you've been up there, Are these big birds that are soaring? So we got the hummingbirds, we got the, I don't know if they were eagles, but big hawks. But let me give you this mental picture. In this verse, it's talking about wings like eagles. That's God's power. On the other hand, it also kind of references your power, and your power is kind of like a hummingbird. Hummingbirds do not soar, hummingbirds flit. And that's the word I'd use, they flip. Uh, their wings are going really little fast out there. Even if you get a slow motion picture of them, they're still going fast, but they, they just flit. They go so fast, but they're going, they go hip, 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 hip up, 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 just like that. They just flip here, there, here, there, back, there. I'll be watching, up, 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 up. Just, They're running all over the place. Am I talking to a bunch of hummingbirds this morning? I think there are a few of you out there, some of you are exactly like the hummingbird. You look here for hope, look there for hope, look up for hope, look down for hope, try to get hope in your life, you just kind of go whoop, 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 whoop. You're just splitting everywhere. And at the end of the day, it's no wonder some of you get to the end of the week and go, oh, thank God it's Friday. I think about too, I say, thank God it's Friday, you have two more days till I get to come to church. That's a different attitude. If you're worn out by trying to get to a place of hope on your own, like being a hummingbird, I got good news for you. It's not all about the hummingbird, it's about the eagle. Watch an eagle fly. They say that an eagle can soar to the height of 10,000 feet. A hummingbird can barely get above your house. But this eagle is out there soaring. Its wings, I mean, you watch it every once in a while, flaps that wing. But he's soaring, and he kind of dive down, and he just kind of flaps his wing a little bit. Now, how does the eagle do that? Well, the eagle is able to do that because God designed these eagles' wings in such a way to catch the updraft of the wind. That's how it soars to these great heights. But here's the truth. God has also designed your souls to catch the updraft of his love. See, it's not a matter of you trying to hope. It's a matter of you learning to say, God, I need you. I trust you at this moment, moment by moment, day by day. As long as I try to do it like the hummingbird careening all over the place, I'm going to just wear myself out. But the moment I realize I need you, guess what? I feel the updraft of your love, your strength, your power, and I soar like an eagle. Now, let me make this practical in closing. How can I get that kind of an attitude? How can I make the switch from being a hummingbird to an eagle? Very few animals in life I'd really like to be. I'd like to be a dolphin. I'd like that one. Eagle would be kind of cool i love to just soar up above the earth. Well, simply, you just need to realize that God and God alone can give you whatever it is that you need to experience it. The last passage on your screen, or on your outline, comes from Philippians chapter 2. It says, For it is God who is at work within you, giving you the will and giving you the power to achieve his purpose. I hope you got that. It is God... Who is at work in you, giving you the will, giving you the desire. When you recognize that it's not all about you, that it's not about your power or your energy, but that it's all about God who gives you that will, that power, and that energy, that's when freedom to soar sets in. I'll say it again God's power is all about God's power. It's all about God and what God can do in my life and your life. Let's pray. Father, instead of trying to hope, I choose to trust you in hope. I trust that you're a loving Father. And whatever I might feel about you, the truth is you love me enough to die for me. I trust you that you're a loving Father, and I trust that you love me whatever's happened in my life, whatever someone else has said about me, I trust that you still love me. I trust you to give strength to my soul. And Father, I trust that you will do this because you have shown me your love in Jesus. And so in Jesus' name I trust you. And in Jesus' name we also pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us.